0: Just because one cannot sin doesn't mean that he doesn't have to go through uh, his death, life, death, and bearing our sin and, and so on. But the main reason for he could not is tied to the nature of the, of the uh, incarnation, is that uh, it's, it's not a human nature or a human alone. Uh, no, from the moment of conception, the Divine Son has added to Himself a body and a soul, a human nature. Yet, His experience of temptation, living in this fallen world, uh, all that um, you know we experience, not in terms of sin, but, but He lived in a fallen world and experienced this world, and the hatred of this world, and sin of this world, and the bacteria of this world.
1: I mean, that was real, even though He could not fail. Christians and non-Christians alike would acknowledge Jesus Christ's central importance to history. And yet, confusion abounds when it comes to who he really was and what he accomplished. The reality is that many people, including many believers, hold to myths and misconceptions about Jesus that obscure his true significance for history and for our own lives. Today, we're going to dig into some of those myths and explore why Jesus is far better, far more glorious. Than we could ever imagine. In our interview today, I'm talking with Stephen Wellam, professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and the author of The Person of Christ, An Introduction from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast.
0: Oh, it's a great, it's a delight to be with you, Matt.
1: So in our conversation today, we're going to talk a lot about some common myths and misconceptions about Jesus uh, held by both believers and unbelievers alike. Um, But on that first category of believers, uh, you recently wrote an article for Crossway where you noted that even within the evangelical church, there is, quote, rampant confusion regarding the person and work of Christ. And so I wonder, that's maybe a little bit surprising to hear to the average Christian. So could you uh, unpack that a little bit? Why do you say that there is rampant confusion?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, especially, of course, when it's within the church. I mean, that's that's our concern, isn't it? And and no one wants to say that there is rampant confusion until you see some evidence for it. And just by the the polls that are taken... Uh, You know, the State of Theology poll that uh, Ligadier and Lifeway have put out since 2014 every other year. I mean, when you look at uh, those who identify as evangelicals and you ask them specific theological questions, uh, we know that there's rampant confusion and uh, particularly, for instance, in the latest Uh, 2020, do you believe that Jesus is God or just uh, human? And and 30% of evangelicals are identifying him as not God. Mm. But we know it's confused because in another question, they uh, ask about the Trinity. Uh, Do uh, do you believe in the Trinity in terms of one God, three persons? And then they mention God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you have 96% say yes. But then 30 percent say no in terms of the deity of christ so i take this to be uh confusion i take this to be if we put the most positive spin on it um that there's just not the proper biblical and theological teaching that needs to be taking place in our churches and so people are picking up truths they're believing many things uh, but they're not clear and when asked specific questions uh, they're not answering them correctly. And so that's why, that's just one example, I think, of the kind of confusion that's out there. And then as we press in on the work of Christ, I think people uh, aren't understanding what Jesus has done, uh, the nature of his life, and then to death, to the resurrection. There's just a lot of uh, disagreements and uh, confusion, and I think it's being tied to the larger culture. Uh, that we can easily be conformed to the world and not be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that's, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing just simply by the polls and you know what we're reading as various uh churches are being uh you know people are within churches are being asked questions and again we when we speak of evangelicalism it's so broad obviously right so you know there's always exceptions uh individual churches can be solid and be well taught but just broadly speaking within uh north america i think even the western world generally speaking uh we just uh, the church is lacking in these very foundational truths
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump in then to maybe the first, one of the first myths that is often, you might often hear, uh, maybe less among Christians, Uh, maybe this is more among non-Christians, but I think sometimes even uh, concerns about this do creep into the church. And that does relate to some of those early Christian councils and creeds and the language that arose out of them, like the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, So the myth would be that these were, there were essentially Hellenistic or Greek distortions of Old Testament monotheism that kind of crept in, where there were people trying to sort of merge together uh, Israel's Old Testament theology with some of these new foreign philosophical ideas from Greek theology and philosophy. So how would you respond to that that first myth?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a large myth that's been with us. I mean, uh, older liberal theology would have spoken about. Uh, the acute Hellenization of of Christian theology and sort of the imposition of of Greek thought on the Bible. And of course, that's a serious, serious charge because eventually if that charge would stick, then our confessional standards would not be biblical, right? I mean, they would be one step removed uh, from what scripture is teaching. I think as you look at this, and many have have done this, and I, I try to just in a brief Uh, You know, form, uh, deal with these kind of issues. But I think the truth of the matter is, it's it's the opposite is the case, is that Hmm. we we do have to admit that um, when we do theology, and this is just part of the theological task, we work from scripture to then try to understand how all the parts fit together. And inevitably, as we do that, we introduce what I like to say is extra outside of biblical language, but that's not unbiblical language. So it's outside of scripture, the word Trinity, the word person, the word nature, all of those kind of terms are not technically found chapter and verse. Sometimes you can find them, but they're not always used the way they are in the confessions. Yet they're necessary to make sense of the biblical material. And I think what you're seeing with Nicaea and Chalcedon is they're using theological terms to... Not only teach the church within uh, how to put the pieces together, but they're also responding to the charges from without who deny. The biblical teaching and as they do so they're very careful uh in getting scripture right it's a different vocabulary but it is true to the scripture so you think of the one god who is presented from uh genesis to revelation well the trinity it's one true and living god yet the father is god the son is god the spirit is god that is then unpacked for us in terms of three persons and, and one nature. And one of the great examples I like to go to to show how the church was anti-Greek in the sense of it went against its culture in theology is that as the church had to distinguish the three persons from the one nature, there's three yet there's also one, and then in Christology there's the one person who subsists in two natures. So they had to come up with vocabulary for person and nature yet in the Greek language uh, those terms that were used for person and for nature were actually uh, synonyms and of course you would never be able to distinguish them if they were synonyms because mm. it would mean the same thing and the church came along on the basis of Scripture and distinguished what a person was what from a nature was filled it with biblical content and then gave the confessional standards to make sense of the biblical material so in that sense they were very anti uh, greek and also the, the christian worldview in terms of even the reality of an incarnation the creator creature distinction the creator the the son of god taking on humanity that's not greek Uh, thought at all so i think as you look at the actual uh, history is that the church is working from scripture faithful to the christian the theology of the bible and it's really anti-greek at that point even though there are greek terms that are being used or latin terms that are being used the content of those terms is different
1: Hmm. So how would you respond to someone listening right now who says, you know, you know, that's all well and good, but why do we even need to use these extra biblical terms? Why can't we just stick to the language of the Bible?
0: Well, I mean, that was the, the church wrestled with that uh, over and over again. And, and the, the reason simply is, is that uh, we have to then accurately describe who Jesus is, because when someone comes along and says, for instance, and this showed up in the early church, you read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Uh, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Well, uh, as you would have with Jehovah's Witnesses today or the Arians in the early church, they take the language of firstborn and they say, well, that means first created being. Uh, yet in context that's not what it means and in order to distinguish uh, the The Bible's view and a a proper theological view, you have to then introduce language to say this is not what we mean and this is how this word will be understood in terms of a larger theology. So it's really for preserving the truth of scripture, accurately communicating it, avoiding the errors of those who are, are reading the scripture in an improper way. And it's for discipleship, it's for defense of the faith, and it's for a proper presentation of who the Jesus of the Bible is.
1: Hmm. Well, let's jump into the next myth then that you've already kind of referenced. Uh, probably one of the foundational ones that the early church was combating was the idea that as the Son of God, Jesus uh, is the first and greatest being created by God. And you referenced this Survey that sort of indicated that maybe a lot of evangelical Christians would say that that's true. How would you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know there was about sixty some percent of of those who identify with evangelicalism affirmed that he was the Jesus was the first and greatest creative being which is clearly and uh, what we would say is an Aryan or today's Jehovah's Witnesses would affirm that our, our response to that is is first we have to clarify I think with many evangelicals they're probably thinking of Christ's humanity at that point, uh, even though they should know that that language is is tied to heretical positions, they don't. Hmm. But they're probably referring to as humanity.
1: Yeah. And what
0: we have to then say is that as we look at Scripture, uh, the Jesus of the Bible is the one who is the eternal Son of God. Uh, John uses the language of the word of God. You think of John 1, who has always, always existed with the Father and the Spirit. At a point in time, he takes on. So this is Philippians 2. He who is in the very form or nature God does not consider that to be clung on to, but he he adds, the phrases there are picking up, he adds to himself the form of the very nature of a human so that he becomes human, the Word became flesh, yet he is the eternal Son who shares the divine nature with the Father and the Spirit, who now adds a second nature. And of course, this is why the Church was so very strong on the two natures of Christ, so that he is the eternal Son who's always uh, shared the divine nature, who now adds to himself a human nature, and it's a Different nature. It's a distinct nature. It's it's the creature nature and this and, and is not tied to the creator. And so he's not the first and greatest created being. He is the eternal Son of God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word who's with, who is, but in time he adds to himself a second nature. And in that area of the incarnation, he is becoming human. But he's always been the eternal son for eternity
1: would it be right to speak of his human nature as created?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You would have to, and of course, we have in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, those two gospels uh, get the closest to describing how it is that he added this human nature to himself and that created human nature came to Uh, be joined to the person of the son and that's of course at the virgin uh, Mm -hmm. conception so that it that human nature did not exist prior to that conception there were some um, in in the uh, reformation area that spoke of christ having the son of god having celestial flesh you know almost like a human nature created in heaven that he is acting like a surrogate or so huh. but uh no that's not the case is that at the moment of conception by uh what is taken from Mary by the agency of the spirit that human nature is created in the son of god takes that to himself and that's very very important because that's how he becomes one with us uh in order to redeem us and to represent us
1: yeah so if, if that myth then uh kind of keying off of that phrase, Son of God, misunderstands that title in in one way we've just discussed. Uh, another misunderstanding could be that Jesus's designation as the Son of God is a mere title that says nothing about his relationship, the nature of his relationship with God the Father. So I wonder, unpack that for us. What should we understand by the biblical language that Jesus is, or that the Son is, the Son of God?
0: Yeah, it's very, very important language. And and of course, as we continue to, uh, you know, in this country, but around the world, especially deal with uh, other religious groups. Um, so not only within the church, we have to be clear about this, but you think of within Islam, there's a huge misunderstanding of what Christians mean by the son of God, because they take that purely in a biological uh, sense. But in, in scripture, and this is why it's so crucial to see who Jesus is within the whole storyline of the bible the whole framework of scripture and 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 so on so that as we work from genesis uh, to the new testament it's no doubt the case that the son of god language first is applied in the human sense so that uh, the first time we see that son of god language applied is to the nation of israel as a corporate people in exodus 4 the firstborn son or the Davidic king is the son to Yahweh, the father. So The Davidic covenant is, is God is the, is the father to the king, father-son relationship. Yet as you work through the Old Testament, and this is what Jesus himself picks up in the Gospels, uh, the Old Testament itself is saying, yes, there is coming a king, a son, one who will represent the Lord, yet he also now takes on the very names and titles of God, You think of uh, Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That gets applied to the son, the king. And then you, you say, well, how does that work, right? Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, and Jesus picks this up. So as you work from the Old Testament to new, yes, the son of God is a human son, but the son of God now is, we now know, is the eternal son. And of course, that's what takes full light in the new testament so we have to say son of god language functions uh two levels first and foremost it functions eternally he is the eternal son of god in relation to the father and spirit john one picks that up with the word language and then he adds to himself a human nature and becomes a human son but there it's now at the human level and, and son of god now speaks both of his deity his eternal sonship as well as his humanity. And a lot of the uh, titles in the New Testament uh, work that way as well. Son of Man works that way. You think of it just simply as humanity, but even in the Old Testament, Son of Man is identified with God in Daniel 7, and it takes on divine overtones as well. But Son of God language is both deity and humanity, and you first have to get eternal Son right first, uh, and then he becomes human Son for us.
1: Hmm. So beyond merely referring to Jesus's deity, uh, that Son of God title, does that reveal anything about the nature of his as God, the nature of his relationship with God, the Father, who is also God? Yeah,
0: I mean, the this, this Son of God language, I mean, is, is used. I mean, obviously, it's biblical language. It's revealed language. So we work from what God has disclosed and revealed to us. But it it uniquely picks up the father-son relationship of of God the Father, God the Son, right? So the Son of God is the Son to the Father. The Father can't be thought of as Father without the Son. And this is why, you know, our confessional standards in the early church uh, spoke about the begottenness or the eternal... Generation of the Son. This was over against the Arians who thought of the Son as as the first created thing or becoming a Son in in simply a creation sense. No, 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 no. He's the Son eternally in relation to the Father. The Father cannot be thought of apart from the Son. And now you have the Trinitarian relations. The Father through the Son, the Son from the Father, and then by the Spirit. So you move from Trinity to Christology. So Sonship speaks of his unique relationship to the Father as well as the Spirit, but particularly the Father. And you see that worked out, particularly in John's Gospel in the New Testament. John 5, speaks. Jesus speaks about how he's the Son who... Who can do nothing on his own but does all that the father does which speaks of full equal deity yet it speaks of a relation that he has to the father from eternity so trinity to then christology that gives us the deity of christ
1: yeah you mentioned the language of only begotten and you even used a phrase uh, eternal generation and i noticed speaking personally that's a phrase that i had not heard until probably college and uh, when I first heard that phrase, it struck me as very, very foreign and very odd language to be using to talk about the Son's relation to the Father. Have you encountered that in your own teaching and writing work, that, that many Christians are unfamiliar with that, that terminology and maybe even feel maybe a little bit suspicious of it?
0: Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and I think that uh, the, re- the reason for this is going back to what we we started with, is that we don't have, uh, in our present-day church, this doesn't mean that it's in every church or it's always been this way, but there's really not the solid theological understanding tied to the historical confessions. So that uh, eternal generation, if you go back into our confessions, you go back into the history of the church, uh, even, you know, a hundred years ago, you read uh, the older theologies, it's all there but it has start started to fall away in in the contemporary. and i and I think the reason for that is is that we haven't. Uh, gone back to history we haven't uh, gone back to our confessional basis and some things in the evangelical world again it depends upon whether one's coming out of more of a high church uh, more reformed ending of things where there's much more confessional emphasis a lot of our evangelical churches that came out of the bible movement which are very you know very good and rich in terms of evangelism and and billy graham crusades and so on Uh, They also got nervous about... The confessional standards, the historic theology, it's sort of me and the Bible, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a D.L. Moody was asked, you know, what's your theology? Well, I, d- I never knew I had a theology, he said, you know. <laughs> uh, it's just the Bible. Well, I mean, all, all of those are good motives, right? But uh, it can lead us astray. So the language of eternal generation is, is, I think, foreign to many people, begotteness language. It sounds old English uh language and it's it's been dropped out even some of our translations there's been a whole uh debate over uh how to translate greek words and and some of begottenness has dropped out in terms of unique versus begotten and uh, so really though in the history of the church these terms even though they seem strange are simply reflecting on the biblical material mm-hmm. there is the Father to the Son. There's the Son of the Father. There's the Father who sends the Son. The Son who obeys all that the Father commands, particularly in terms of the Incarnation and His work. And and then you have to think of that relation between Father, Son, and Spirit, but Father and Son eternally. And when you think of Son, you think of one who comes from... That's the idea of generation. Yet, it's not like human generation. It didn't happen in time. Uh, it's not creaturely. This is eternal generation. And so, speaking of the relations of the persons and really uh, wrestling with, say, a John seventeen five, where Jesus will say, the glory I shared with you, Father, before the creation of the world. It's unpacking that glory. It's unpacking yeah. that relation. It's unpacking the dynamism within the persons who share the one divine nature unlike anything Creaturely, and and the doctrine of the Trinity is so so important. It's it's uh, it's not just a strange mathematical problem. Uh, it's uh, actually central to the whole presentation of who God is. We have no answers theologically, even as an entire worldview, without the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these this older language is so crucial for the church to understand. And if the church did understand this, they wouldn't be answering. Um, you know, questions such as, is Jesus the first and greatest created being? They would know right away, oh, no, 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 he is the eternal Son of God, and he's not a created being.
1: All right, another misconception or myth that uh, I think can actually be more common among Christians than we might realize. We might not use these, these words to describe it, but it maybe infects how we think in subtle ways. But, namely, that Jesus was fully God, but merely appeared in a human form in some mm-hmm. way. While he was on the earth,
0: yeah, I mean, that was one of, uh, really, in some sense, the first uh, great uh, denial of of the biblical teaching uh, in the early church, and uh, and the Bible's counters that. I mean, you even see, uh, say, even John one fourteen, the word became flesh is, is strongly emphasizing he took on our. Our humanity it doesn't mean just uh, you know skin and bones in terms of flesh but our, our full humanity or first John where John will say we saw him we touched him first uh, John four: anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist who denies and and uh, you do have some who say well he just sort of appeared mm-hmm. to be human but no the Bible is very clear right from conception all the way through Luke 2:52, he grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. He is fully human. And it's absolutely essential that he's fully human. Otherwise, you have no savior. He must come and uh, obey for us and live our life and die our death and pay for our sin. And no phantom human can do that. Uh, You think of the teaching of, you know, a lot of things in Scripture, but the great high priest who comes from the people, who represents the people, who acts as a, who offers substitution for the people, that's what Jesus must do. So if he is not fully human, you have no redeemer. He cannot be phantom. Uh, He has to take on our humanity, and in that humanity, he must redeem us.
1: Hmm. I think one of the trickiest areas then to unpack in light of that is when uh, our understanding of human nature and of divine nature kind of clash. They seem like they're irreconcilable. So, for example, you mentioned that passage in, uh, in Acts where it speaks of Jesus growing in his wisdom and knowledge and uh, as a human we can understand what that's like. We experience that kind of growth, but then when we think of Jesus's divine nature, it's hard to understand how he could grow in any meaningful sense, because he is fully God. So, So what do you do with that when there's categories of attributes that are like that, that feel like they are mutually exclusive, and yet we're saying they come together in a single person?
0: Yeah, I mean, those are that's at the heart of uh, you know making sense of the word became flesh and uh, understanding who who Christ is. I mean, we have to first uh, say that you know as we think of this as humans, there's nothing in us as humans that's comparable, right? We can't just sort of <laughs> refer to some analogy because we, unlike uh, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, we are only. You know, sort of we would use the language of Chalcedon, one person in one nature type of thing. He is he is one person in two natures. And it's the two natures that is, is very, very important. But also the person-nature distinction. And this is where the church has carefully, carefully thought through this. And this is unique to Christian theology, as we said, when we responded to the charge that, you know, uh, we've just imposed Greek thought on on the bible type of thing no the church actually did something which is totally anti-greek it distinguished person and nature now not in the sense of they can be separated from one another but a person is the subject of a nature they're inseparable but they're two different concepts and so when it comes to the person of christ you have to remember that when we talk about the person of christ we're speaking about the divine son the second person who has always acted through persons act through natures the person acts with the father and the spirit through the same divine nature yet in adding a human nature to himself he's now able to act in that nature which is not blended or or sort of you know one mixed with a divine nature so as the son acts through the human nature it's fully human he doesn't make the human nature something it's not Hmm. yet he is not limited to that human nature because he has always has had a divine nature and that's where it really gets tricky uh, for us but it's the one subject person the divine son who acts through both nature simultaneously we have nothing like this yet he is able to do that and and you think of uh, the importance of this say in a colossians one seventeen, that even as the incarnate one that he is the son who sustains the universe well he doesn't do that in a human power or a human knowledge he does that as the divine son through a divine nature so that he in adding a human nature is still still able to what he's always done that doesn't change uh to uh, to act as a divine son with the father and the spirit yet now he is able to act outside of that divine nature in a human nature but it's the person that is acting through both natures so it's not as if the human nature is sort of doing something that's divine and the divine nature is doing something that's human it's the person through both natures and that's really we would say the mystery of the incarnation the heart of the incarnation but the scripture will teach all of that and 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 indeed go further and say unless you have a divine human savior Uh, there is no salvation for you. Hmm. Uh, This is not just some abstract notion. You need one who is both fully God, fully human, just like this, not a blended. Uh, You don't have a creator-creature blend in Christ. Uh, This isn't sort of Eastern religions where you move towards a pantheism where everything is all God and the world are blended. No, no, no. They are distinct, yet in the Son they're united. The natures are united in the person.
1: Another myth that I think sometimes Christians can wrestle with is that Jesus' death on the cross is what secured our salvation, but that his life on earth before that is only kind of of a secondary importance. It's there just to get him to the cross, but it doesn't actually play a big role in, in, in our salvation. How would you respond to that?
0: Well, the only way you can respond to that is you've got to understand the whole work of Christ. I mean, not only the incarnation, but his life, death, resurrection, in light of the whole Old Testament, uh, the storyline, the covenantal structures of the Bible. And this is where uh, the life of Christ is very, very important, uh, especially if we understand that he's coming uh, as last Adam. Uh, he's coming as second man. The first man is, is Adam. The most two mo- most important men of, of the Bible are Adam and Christ. There's a lot of important people in the Bible, but those are the two most significant ones. And uh, Adam's disobedience brings uh, sin and death, and he is called to be an obe- obedient covenant keeper. Uh, the covenantal structures, Reformed Theology has talked about covenant of works, uh, others talk about, I, I talk about covenant of creation, it's amounting pretty much to the same thing, is that the son of, you know, Adam, uh, it was to, to be fully devoted to God, to give perfect uh, love and devotion and obedience, and, and that life then needed to be lived, and he didn't live it. The Son of God now lives his life for us, so all the way through his obedience. His obedience is supremely seen in the cross, Philippians 2, even to death on a cross. But the obedience is through his entire life. And the Reformed tradition has picked this up in the act of obedience of Christ. He obeys for us as our covenant head. He dies for us as our substitute. Representation and substitution go hand in hand in the covenants. Mm-hmm. And as our covenant head, he is doing both for us. We need uh, a righteous standing, an obedient standing before God and the full uh, forgiveness of our sins and the payment of our sins. And that's what justification is. And his life and death and resurrection are central, crucial to our justification.
1: Mm. Yeah, these truths that can sometimes we can be so precise with the language, but I think you've really shown this morning that they they do get to the heart of the gospel. They get to the heart of our hope as Christians, uh, What what it is that we are hanging our very lives on, Um, Maybe as a last question, this is less of a myth and more of a question that I think maybe almost every Christian at some point has wrestled with related to Jesus and thinking through how he could be truly God and man. And that's namely, could Jesus have sinned?
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, that's a question that, I mean, everyone... Uh, who takes the Bible seriously will say Jesus never sinned. I mean, the Bible is just very clear. He was sinless. He did not sin. So the question that's asked really is a kind of hypothetical. Uh, could he have sinned? We know he didn't sin, but but could he have? And so it's important to say that. Uh, so even when we have disagreements among Christians, and, and many have taken different sides on this. They're not denying or saying that Jesus is a sinner or or so on. Mm. Uh, That would be a whole different uh, problem, (laughs) right? Yeah. But I I do think the, um, the minority position in the church uh, has been that uh, he could have sinned. And, and um, it's, it's grown uh, in, in importance today. I mean, there's a lot of, of people today that are, that's called the peccability position that he he could have could have sinned uh, even though he he didn't and a lot of it's tied to the fact of well he he went through temptations as we do and if he could not have sinned then you know his salvation wouldn't be real for us and that he was faced with every temptation and he had to obey for us and so on and, and of course there's a lot of um, you know important truths that it's picking up but the dominant position and the position i would argue would be that he could not uh have sinned that doesn't minimize the reality of his temptations, doesn't minimize the cry in Gethsemane and the cross. Uh, it's real. Just because one cannot sin doesn't mean that he doesn't have to go through uh, his death, life, death, and bearing our sin, and, and so on. But the main reason for he could not is tied to the nature of the, of the uh, incarnation. Is that, uh, it's, it's not a human nature or a human alone. Uh, no from the moment of conception the divine son has added to himself a body and a soul a human nature and because the person of christ is the divine son then who is inseparable relation with the father and spirit it, it's quite unthinkable to think that he could have sinned he is the divine son now in that humanity he doesn't you know turn on his deity or so uh he's dependent upon the spirit he lives out in obedience in that humanity it's a real obedience and so on but uh it is the divine son who is the person of the human nature and and uh and given the internal plan of god i would take a strong view of divine sovereignty and so on God cannot fail. God's plan would not fail. He could not have hypothetically uh, failed and not brought about our salvation. Yet His experience of temptation, living in this fallen world, uh, all that um, you know, we experience not in terms of sin, but but he lived in a fallen world and experienced, this world, and the hatred of this world, and sin of this world, and the bacteria of this world, I mean, that was real, even though he could not fail. He is the Lord mm. who will, salvation is of the Lord, and from beginning to end, he will he could not fail.
1: Mm. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us and, and help us navigate through, uh, uh, at times, complicated and challenging to wrap our minds around, but nevertheless, centrally foundational uh, doctrine, that as, such as the doctrine of Christ. We, we appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for having me and again as I think we began, there's no greater subject than uh, the glory of our triune God in the face of Christ and uh, the glory of Christ and so I hope that uh, even in some small way this this, this has, has helped think through uh, the Jesus of
1: the Bible and why he is absolutely important. That was Stephen Wellam on Common Myths About Jesus. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Person of Christ, An Introduction, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.